It is our last Tacky Talk of January 2024 with State Representative Tacky Chan of Quincy. Hey, Tacky, how are you? Hey, Joe. Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather. Uh, got a bit of a chest code, so I apologize in advance for any uh, odd sounds coming from my end <laughs> and uh, my constant desire to reach for my cup for from some green tea. So those watching the video will see my my uh, my mug a little more often. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it seems like everybody has got something this time of year. It's If it's not chest cold, it's a head cold, or certainly COVID is still around. There's the flu. There's just about everything. Yeah, the CDC has announced uh, last month, actually, that uh, there's been a rise in respiratory diseases throughout the United States, not necessarily just COVID, but you're right, the common cold, RSV, um, uh, the flu. I mean, they're all floating around. And uh, the dry weather... Uh, doesn't help. As we learned during COVID, uh, particles that come out of your breath travel further in dry air. Uh, there's not enough humidity to weigh down the particles. Um, and I know it's been raining and snowing and it's been weird all over the country and especially throughout Massachusetts with different weather patterns. Uh, and also we're indoors more often. So you know, increase the chances of respiratory diseases being passed around. And Again, we remind folks, I mean, wash your hands. I mean, this is something I'm still marveling we keep talking about. And, you know, try to um, keep your distance from folks you're not feeling well. If you're, you know, if you're contagious, definitely stay home. I mean, you know, if, if you can do remote work because you're sick, then try to, if your boss allows that. That's also part of an employer responsibility to keep your workplace safe. And, um, you know, I masked up on meetings, um, not because of my safety, but because I didn't want to give it to anybody else. Right. There's people that's on, that gets lost in folks sometimes that the, the mask is as much, um, you know, to protect other folks around you as it is to protect you. Yeah, it's really down to like fast photo ops. I mean, you get it off fast enough for the 15 seconds of photos and then you put it right back on. Um, even then, I try to keep, you know, a couple of feet, three feet minimum away from folks. And uh, anytime, you know, I had a meeting and had to do some meetings at the state house despite feeling quite poor. You know, my office can maintain a six foot plus distance for myself and the people on the couch. So, you know, I let people know and, you know, people, okay, you know, we have hand sanitizer in the office and and the ability to not get too close and people are fairly comfortable with that. So, yeah, yeah. You know, despite uh, being not great and I did say, you know, stay home, um, you know, I, I have been kind of been very careful picking and choosing, getting out to, to things I have already committed to showing up at. Right. Like uh, you mentioned your social media posts. I saw the pictures with uh, the uh, family of Fred Korematsu. Yeah, this is a one of those things that uh, very rare opportunities. So uh, my colleague, uh, Erica Idahoven, who's Japanese, uh, has filed a bill to establish Fred Korematsu Day uh, on January 30th, which is his birthday. And uh, the governor made a proclamation and the mayor of Boston, Mayor we made a proclamation, did killing Fred Korematsu Day on January 30th. Now, those who don't know Fred Karamatsu, this goes back to World War II. So some of you may or may not know Executive Order 9066 by FDR. And it basically uh, gives uh, an order to establish internment camps or concentration camps is what they really were. For Japanese citizens throughout the country, but especially on the West Coast, and the fear that it would be um, spies and 
danger to the United States. And it didn't matter if you were a recent immigrant or a third generation here, you all interred and it involved uh, even small children. Some children are born in these concentration camps in the United States because that's what they were. We use internment because it sounds more polite. And uh, revisionist history has been going around again, as we've already seen uh, regarding a lot of ethnic groups, about the fact it was "quote unquote" for your protection, and that there were uh, that there was uh, evidence of, of the spies, and there was zero evidence, and nothing ever happened, and uh, they lost all their property, uh, they lost all their businesses. I think it was sold at a dime, and certain industries, especially agricultural industries, uh, basically took their land. Uh, because the government, you know, made himself or nothing or took it from them and gave them away. And um, they spent, you know, upwards of six years uh, in these internment camps and uh, were let out um, with nothing, no compensation. I think they had like two bucks or five bucks and a train ticket. And that was that. So this is one of those parts of American history people tend not to want to talk about. And um, why Fred Hermas was uh, interesting is that him and a couple of folks you know, were arrested in the early 20s because they were U.S. citizens. They felt like they had the same rights as other U.S. citizens, and um, they challenged the law. A couple of interesting facts. ACLU National actually told all ACO branches not to take these cases, except for Seattle and San Francisco, who defied um, the national ACLU's instructions, and those two chapters just went ahead on their own independently. And there's only reason these cases could ever make it on a civil liberties issue because the ACLU would take these cases, which really made no money, to be honest with you. There is no money in civil rights cases. Um, it's not like it's tort litigation where you could get, you know, a class action third of a third kind of scenario and things like that. Yeah. So um, essentially, uh, the long story short, it made it way to the Supreme Court and the U.S. solicitor um uh, you know, what you know, tried to make a case that the Japanese were dangerous, and obviously, the case is that you got to prove that we're dangerous, otherwise, I can't say we're dangerous. And uh, there have been a few years of research by the U.S. military on this. And, um, the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled that you know, in the interest of national safety, you know, you can do this. And uh, he was arrested and convicted. Uh, the conviction was held and it was sent to, uh, to the concentration camps. Now, uh, there was actually a documentary on a, a WGBH website about um, lies and exposures regarding uh, this entire executive order in the Supreme Court. It, it turns out there is a smoking gun. And the smoking gun was um, lies by the U.S. government, uh, especially U.S. military at the time, uh, to um, fabricate that there's a danger here. I mean, that's actually what caused the overturn of the Karamatsu case. From the conviction, not the internment camp. People have to keep an eye on the two different things because one is a violation of not compliance. The other is the legality of the executive order itself. And actually, there was a law put into place to execute said executive order. So the executive Karamazov case is actually very good law still, sadly very good law. It's good law to rely on. The conviction uh, was unjustified because the evidence for the conviction was not valid because the U.S. government actually held back information uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, and of course, you can imagine this was not a consensus in the FDR administration. There was a lot of conflict among folks within the administration about this and, you know, continue, uh, frankly, racist beliefs that they were doing this out of the kindness of, of Japanese Americans and the interest of the public safety. And 
um, you know, one of the uh, interesting parts to come out of this is that the uh, the uh, Japanese were traitors because of genetic disposition. Essentially, the ethnicity automatically makes them traitors to the country. Is actually one of the premises. Now, obviously, some of you hearing this for the very first time, and frankly, some of the stuff I learned as I go along too, because they don't teach us in history books. And honestly, this is not a thing that was heavily taught in law school. But the most fascinating part is is that even though uh, Freddie Carmarsh's case is still good law, no action has ever been done to overturn said case law. Mm. And, um, you know, Karen Karamatsu actually is the daughter, and it was kind of fascinating because and this was a very shameful part, not just against the United States, but also the Japanese people because Japanese citizens, you know, were branded traitors by their country, put in a concentration camp, and not just them, but the grandparents, great-grandparents, children, and children yet to be born in concentration camps. So, you know, an anti-Japanese Japanese settlement doesn't end with just a war. And it's actually kind of a uniquely Asian problem because, you know, after World War II, Japanese were still looked on poorly. You have Vietnam. Vietnamese were looked on poorly. You know, you have the Chinese communist issue. And then, you, of course, have the Chinese government today, which is causing all kinds of issues between the U.S. and other countries. And again, Chinese living here suffer the consequences of that national issue. Uh, I mean, you don't see, you know, Russians right now being tossed onto the street. I'm sure there's a lot of negative attitude, but it isn't an encouragement by political figures to go after uh, that demographic. It is uniquely among Asian ethnic groups uh, over the over the decades, many decades. So Heron Karmasu actually found out this uh, story, sadly, as, as part of a classroom in elementary school uh, during a book report regarding her father's case. Uh, another classmate wrote a book report on it. And so imagine being a child finding out that your father uh, was uh, in a landmark case um, and was arrested for it, and you found an elementary school in a book report, and because that's how much shame is associated with this kind of scenario. So um, so th this is a movement nationally at, at the state level to, to get you know Frank Karamatsu's uh, recognized as a civil rights leader because he actually kept continuing to advocate for civil rights, particularly in his later years, uh, to remind folks that this can happen to you. And we, you know, uh, Norman Minata, um, first Asian uh, Secretary of Commerce and first uh, Secretary of Transportation, first Asian Secretary under the uh, Clinton and George W. Bush uh, administrations, um, was there 9-11 Transportation Secretary. And, and, you know, I had the privilege of hearing him speak at uh, actually WGBH, for AIP months some years back. And he said that the Muslim internment was actually part of the conversation. Hmm. Uh, Norman Namada came out of internment camps. So, you know, he basically said, we can't do this. And George W. Bush made the decision in the room saying, no, we can't do this. This is what we did to Norman. Why should we do this to other people? This is not right. So as much as you like to criticize electeds, I'm one of them, and you're welcome to criticize. I think some of these decisions that we make, um, particularly the highest levels of government, you know, the presidency, um, are done in rooms and is actually part of people's real life experience that they share on critical public policy meetings. If Norman Renata was not in that room, there's a distinct possibility, and probably a very high one, that there would probably be uh, uh, concentration camps for Muslims as a result of that. But so one of the things that I hope uh, we'll come out of this is someone in Congress realizes this is just flat up racist practice that you put people in 
essentially prison with no definite timeline of return simply because their ethnicity makes them traitorous. Um, and it's flat out racist. It's really that simple. And, you know, it's like your ethnicity makes you a criminal. So, you know, we did that. And um, I was actually invited to a new law school that evening as well after the camera today at State House and um, gave a talk about racism um, and Asian racism and how uh, it's not taught in law school well, uh, not just the Karamaritsu cases, but several uh, dozens upon dozens of cases uh, from Asian litigation uh, or be uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Indian, Syrian, you know, uh, various groups about trying to get civil rights uh, in the United States. We, we, we learn about you know, African-American civil rights movements in courts, but not Asian-American. And I'm sure there's Hispanic ones as well that, that I probably don't know about, as well as absentee of history of uh, what we talked about before, ethnic studies, and how Asian-Americans' contributions to the United States are largely glossed over, including pioneering um, the, the positions of being first to people of color to break color barriers. Uh, Asians have broke color barriers. We just act like it never happened. So, you know, this is part of the tenets of the lack of ethnic studies in our history books about these challenges. Most people don't realize Norman Minata was the first secretary of Asian descent, which didn't happen until the second half of the Clinton administration. Do you know, have other states had um, similar proclamations, Tacky, or is Massachusetts the first? I think we have, I think there's 13 states that move forward on these proclamations. Um, California's been... Try to think of California as the first one to do Fred Karamatsu Day. It's somewhat of a, a new movement nationally um, to do this. And uh, this country actually, uh, you know, a little trivia, this country actually, in, on the federal level, highly resists um, naming days for people. And the state level, not necessarily unusual, but definitely the federal level. And i give you a very simple example. It's called George Washington's birthday. George Washington's birthday was a thing at one time. But at a certain point, Congress decided that, you know, we're not here to um, put one per person at pedestals. It's a country built, a nation built on people. Hence, that's why we have President's Day in February. Mm. And just by dumb luck, both Washington and Lincoln's birthday are somewhere in the vicinity of that day, which is part of the reason they picked it. And uh, the only person at the federal uh, holiday level is Martin Luther King, uh, signed into law by Ronald Reagan. Uh, and uh, that shows you the, how significant someone is to the nation's uh, contribution uh, if you're named holiday at the federal level. It is the only one. And many states, of course, have lots of different holidays for people relevant to the states. Columbus Day is probably one of the one people knows the most. That's the only one named in um, Massachusetts. Um, but, uh, you know, the federal government historically has a mentality that, you know, this is a country built not on one person, but on many people. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So when you say um, this this case is good case law, why why do you think it's good case law, Jackie? Because it's still there. Good case law means it's never been repealed by court or taken away. As you saw, the Roe case has been um, diminished because the, the federal protections are gone and that's been you know pulled back. It's it's dead, revoked, so no longer valid, and shifts back to the state level. It's a state issue. Uh, Kuramatsu case is good law because uh, the government can implement 
uh, executive orders uh, to uh, do this to other ethnic groups. And the Karamatsu case uh, was never an, uh, an official apology uh, or acknowledge of wrongdoing by any U.S. president. So well, there were some reparations made to the survivors, which of course took like four decades to get, below how this works, right? You know, no U.S. president uh, in Congress has never issued a formal apology, and no U.S. president has stated that this was a wrong policy, we should never do it. Gotcha. Okay. And obviously, he has descendants that are now American citizens. Well, actually, Farrah Kamarasu was an American citizen. Oh. So, yeah, the, welcome to the challenge of uh, a subconscious bias, right, Joe? It's that the presumption is that uh, Asians are not U.S. citizens is actually what you just demonstrated this little subconscious bias problem that I face all the time is, is that, you know, that by nature, now, I mean, in the case of Japanese, uh, even by World War II, you had three generations deep of U.S. citizens, three generations deep. Uh, they were uh, as much as anybody else. But in the U.S. government position, the military in particular, was that it's impossible to assimilate them because of their race. Mm, okay. impossible, impossible assimilation because of genetics. So, um, yeah, this is like taking, you know, you, you know, and throw you in with no reason by the federal government throwing you a public safety hazard. And uh, people also mistaken believe Hawaii versus Trump was uh, reverse or karmatsu. Uh, the court did not reverse Karamatsu at all. They considered uh, Hawaii versus Trump a separate issue, but used Karamatsu as a basis of public safety uh, to do that. And uh, the uh, conservative ended the court, so to speak, um, you know, was, uh, has left it to the fact that you know, history showed a side, not the court. Translation, no, we're not going to address this issue. <laughs> We're going to leave it as good law and walk away. So, you know, case law that is not repealed or contradicted by an act of the legislature and the executive branch, you know, Congress and the president, or in our case, the state legislature and the governor, you know, is good law. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, most people think that, well, you don't have recourse past the courts. You do, actually. You know, it's called not just changing law, but changing the actual constitution. Mm. So... You know, it also creates new concepts too. So, um, you know, you, you know, some case laws created from new constitutional amendments. Some case laws are uh, overridden by new constitutional amendments. Yep, yep. So, were members of his family uh, here for that declaration? Yeah, Karen Karamatsu was here. It was very pleasure to meet her. And there's a Karamatsu uh, Foundation Association nationally. Um, it was a good day. Unfortunately, I had to skip out about 40 minutes in because I had to go to Newman Law School to give my, my one-hour lecture of more like 30-plus minutes plus Q&A. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did stick around to watch this documentary on um, WGBH's website called Lies and Deceptions of Executive Order 9066. So I'm not sure I got that right, but I'm sure you guys can just find Executive Order and look it up. And it's about a 45 to 50-minute a documentary, um, and it's mostly based in California because the majority of Japanese and Chinese, Koreans and Indians actually live on the West Coast. Right. Um, the nature of geography. Right. Uh, it's just closer, yeah. <laughs> and also, to, again, remind people, I remind every year during AIP month, and I'll do it again in May, is you should watch this, watch this documentary about Asian Americans. It's about eight hours I'm not sure where it is now. Um, it was on Amazon Prime for a long time. Um, it may be back on WGBH's website for AIP month. It is very long, uh, but it's 
pretty good comprehensive fast move through of Asian Americans in US history um, for about 120 years, basically most of the modern era. So uh, if you're really interested in getting a quick hit on Asian American contributions, also Asian American civil rights issue to highlight real, so to speak. You know, obviously every segment of that documentary has a much more intriguing story if you dive into it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the quick run through, then you can see what you'd be interested in looking more into. But I highly recommend that documentary. And of course, the documentary I just saw on Monday. Okay, very good. Uh, changing topics. I know last week we talked about um, you meeting with the new DCR commissioner, Brian Arrigo, related to uh, Quincy Matters, and uh, that took place, right? Well, I did. I came in sounding like a frog on the road to uh, to do that. And uh, um, thank you very much, Commissioner uh, and their team, to come up and see me and went through a laundry list of issues of uh, constituent interests as well as my own things I see in DCR lands. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest issues is public safety for me. Um, the traffic, I mean, the uh, street lights and Queen uh, first book properly. I'm very aware of the ones that are now out, and it seems to be more of them going out. Light posts that are still missing. So, you know, we, uh, those who may not be aware, National Grid controlled the light posts in Quincy. National Grid transferred those light posts to DCR. You know, uh, and as a result, I you know asked the commissioner, "Hey, you guys got capacity? We need these things fixed or replaced or new ones put up." So we got, you know, some pictures to show him of like, look, this is a problem. And if you're not from the city, and even you are from the city, driving in Freshburg Park yeah. can be hazardous because of the lack of play. We talked about the general beach maintenance. We um, had a full-time employee down here for many years, uh, very much in limbo exactly how they're going to staff the beaches in terms of a point of contact. We should not be calling the commissioner directly. Uh, we should be able to have point of contact locally, as well as work with the friends organizations, as well as the yacht clubs. Talk about dredging, uh, we've discussed this before a few times. And, um, you know, we've got about a million three-ish cash for this project. It's going to cost much more than $1.3 million. But, you know, I got cash on hand here, plus another $2 million earmark bond, plus probably going to need a little bit more money, plus the city has to contribute 20%, plus there's engineering, design, RFP. I mean, it's, it's very involved. So, but as soon as you get started this project, the better off we are. And like I said, I got money, money. You know, we, we, to do this. And those of you who've been down there at low tide, especially the boating community, knows that you can't get in and out of the channel uh, except for two hours on the other side of high tide. And uh, as I said before, Walson Beach isn't a naturally formed beach. It's an artificial beach. So the beach sand naturally goes into the, the, uh, into the bay that fills the channel. And the yacht clubs do pay lease agreements to the DCR, but if you can't get your boats in the water to get out and get in, then What's the point of the lease agreement? So the commission understood, and him being a former sales staffer for sale ways and means, as well as being the mayor of Revere, you know, has a very different approach. It's the first time we have an actual executive running DCR in my time. And that's a good thing. And um, you know, he's going to look into that situation. We talk about Boy Scout projects. We've had a request for Eagle Scouts to do projects, Eagle Scout projects to do on DCR land. And they really want to continue to encourage and promote that. So, you know, we're going to, you know, help put them in contact with some folks here. Um, and then we talked about the general conditions of the road and the lighting system. We've got some concerns about the lights from Fennel Street to C Street. And uh, there's some signalization issues regarding traffic. 
and we asked them to take a look at that. And um, we also asked um, to look again at Kushore Drive uh, regarding uh, kids crossing uh, to um, Marymount School from there. Uh, in other places, uh, the DCR has worked with school departments on essentially cross-jurisdictional issues on allowing you know, the cities and towns to be able to use their own people to help on crossings. DCR has done crossings in some locations when there's not sufficient resources by a city or town. So I asked the lender to put some time into figuring this out. Um, I did see some crossing folks sometime last summer uh, towards the end of the school year, but you know something that I'm very interested in. Obviously, you know, some of the traffic impacts from the C Street Improvement Project will have impact on Cushion Drive, even though that they're not participating in the project. Um, and we also have a bit about um, the flood control issues. So the area around St. Mary Cemetery is a city project, not a state project, where they created a flood retention area, uh, which was sorely tested, uh, obviously, the last few storms. Um, but, you know, First Book is not solely owned by DCR. It's actually a hodgepodge of city, state, and private property owning easements through the whole thing. It's actually quite complicated. So, and of course, the city has an interest in uh, dredging um, the Black Creek uh, area at the end of Furnishbrook. Um, and obviously, you all know I live at the marsh in front with the estuary in front of me. So I kind of see how what happens at this end of the water spectrum. So we talk a lot about that stuff. Um, you know, obviously, we talk about public safety issues. We, we work well with the state troopers regarding safety on Quinshire Drive. And, you know, we, we like better syncing of conversations sometimes with the DCR and state troopers exactly what's going on. Um, as well as working with the yacht clubs locally, including um, uh, parking access uh, immediately around the yacht club for things like night watch. Uh, yacht clubs are required to do night watch. Both people realize they're actually the ones who keep an eye on the, the beach in the dead of night, the call in problems as you see them. So we talked tangentially about, you know, Sporting Park, not in my district. The Blue Hills, not in my district, the Bruce's district, but it's hard to talk about Quincy stuff if you don't end up talking about all the Quincy stuff. Uh, just to get some ideas what they're thinking. And, you know, you know, I feel a little surprised when I, you know, said that you can do crossbow hunting at Squadron Park Park because it actually meets the uh, hunting laws, the distance from residential property. Interesting. Yeah, Mayor from Revere doesn't have this problem. <laughs> you know, it's a little more urban in Revere than it is here in Squantum. <laughs> yeah, so it's a bit of a learning curve. And the commission would like to come down at some point and do some eyes-on look about it. So... Uh, as uh, constituents have brought up a lot of these concerns, as well as the ones I've personally observed, it was a good conversation talking with this and many other things, such as their funding issues and staffing issues and staff rotation and the reorganization of the agency, which is desperately needed a reorganization uh, because it's so inefficient. And, um, you know, but it takes time. And I'm very patient, uh, as you all know. Um, and uh, been on government long enough, though, we have a new administration, you know to sweep out the dead wood, as well as to make it work the way you see it, make it work, isn't something that will snap. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good to know that we're on his radar at least, and uh, and uh, we'll get some uh, some good conversation going. Hopefully, some results. Yeah, he got put on last April, so he has not even done a full year yet. Right. Yep. Exactly. So that's you know between him and. Lieutenant Governor also has uh, executive uh, experience. It's, it's a different administration for sure. Yeah, and the last time we had a mayor in the administration, well, that's not really back up. The last time we had a mayor in a high-end administration regarding um, Lieutenant Governor was Tim Murray. And even then, he wasn't a strong mayor. He wasn't elected by the public. He was a part of a, a strong council mayor right. where council chooses the 
the mayor who was elected in Worcester. I, I don't remember right now. I'm they, not sure either, but I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird election how they do mayors in Worcester, and but it's but it's strong council. So, uh, Worcester is a strong mayor like Quincy, and uh, you know he had to charge into headlong stuff, and he was a COVID mayor too. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yep. So there's that unique experience for sure. Uh, closer to home, we uh, lost a, a, a mainstay on House Neck right in Harold Crowley. Actually, Germantown. Oh, Germantown, uh, right. Yeah, actually, Harold is a Wallace guy. He lives in, he lived on Flag Street, um, up the street from me. Um, and actually delivered newspapers to this home I'm in when he was in high school, the Patriot wow. Life. So but Harold passed away um, this week, and Harold, uh, for kids in Germantown in particular, know Harold Crowley. He, he always uh, spoke very fondly uh, to me uh, on Germantown in particular, and the kids and the challenges there. He actually taught at school at the same time the speaker did uh, down at oh. Um And uh, he also uh, taught at Broad Meadows. So a lot of House uh, Neck folks, Germantown folks, Adam Sure folks have uh, counted Howard, uh, particularly in my age bracket, because he retired in 1994. And uh, I met Howard through Kids Vote. When I worked in Michael Morris's office, he brought me along to learn about Kids Voting, which was a project to encourage kids to vote, learn about candidates, learn about political process at different educational levels, and also try and get the parents to participate on voting day, which actually was very successful. And unfortunately, this program uh, did not survive, definitely. Harold is one that, that made it work. Uh, but, you know, big uh, union person, teachers union in particular, very supportive unions, uh, very supportive of um, education uh, to have more flexibility and understanding than just teaching to a test. Very well read, very well educated. Um, Northeastern, when those co-op, when you could you know, just school and work, um, you know, was in the military. Um, but most importantly, you know, he's one of those guys that always uh, taught me how things got done at the community level. And uh, told me some fun political races and some friendly and unfriendly uh, situations in the city regarding trying to get some stuff done. Um, very passionate about the Thomas Crane Library. And, um, you know, even, you know, before I got into running for office, you know, we talked a lot about you know, what's what's going on here and what people did right and did wrong in the past as he, as he observed it. And again, he was never afraid to tell it how it is, like it or not. And that's always very appreciative. And, you know, when I did run for office, you know, I was running very important mentoring associated with uh, Harold about what to do. And a lot of elected officials in the city went to Harold Crawley, not necessarily looking for his support, but more importantly, to get some guidance about, you know, how to run for office because he's been working on campaigns, you know, since before Michael Morrissey was elected. Let's put this in perspective. So he worked for Morrissey's opponent. You know, rep uh, Joe Brett back in the day. It was a check, Jim or Joe, I think it was Joe. And uh, talk about the time and change and, you know, how we need to be better to, for each other and to each other as opposed to, uh, you know, being too greedy in the world. You should, you should live to the means you're trying to live to, not to hoard things you don't need. And uh, he lived in the same house uh, since he moved to Quincy uh, with his parents. Uh, he took care of his parents uh, right up to when they were 100. Wow. So I'm going to miss Harold, uh, Mrs. T, Mrs. Pipe. Uh, he, uh, I'm going to miss both, but most importantly, I'm going to miss his uh, guidance that I really, really appreciated. 
um, over many years, and I'm sure many folks uh, in you know my age-ish or a little bit older that, that went to uh, Snug Harbor and, and, and um, Broad Meadows, yeah. uh, or was a scout down there, um, would, would you know remember how? And he, he's a hands-on teacher. I mean, he's like, field trips are important. Bringing stuff to a classroom to show kids what it is is important. Changes how kids learn, not just reading a book or watching a YouTube. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a very formidable uh, years uh, for sure that that stick with you uh, for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. So his uh, wake is uh, tomorrow, um, and the um, uh, uh, celebration of life is on on Saturday. So. Um, yeah, no, as you can tell, I'm kind of I'm very sad about this, very bummed out. But he achieved a lot, done a lot, and you know, most of us can only hope to live his full life. Sure. Uh maybe some state issues, Tech, we should talk about the uh the situation with the migrant crisis, uh just unfolding today actually with the new um Melnia Cass Recreation Center being used now as a shelter. Yeah, actually, the DCR commission brought this up as well. I mean, uh, he, he's run into some issues regarding some of his own government buildings regarding um, using a, a shelter to try to use it as well, tra transitional. And this is going to be really tough um, as we're trying to figure this out. The governor's constantly shuffling uh, folks around. You know, State of Commonwealth, she stated that you know, we're able to get some work permits for these folks uh, at the federal level. But, you know, I remind folks about Nearly half the people in shelters are not migrants to Massachusetts residents. Again, I use different indicators about where the economy is going. I use people calling about unemployment, people calling about food stamps, people calling about shelter, people calling for housing assistance, fuel assistance is, is my gauge. And you do this long enough and you pay attention to the number of phone calls, you can kind of sense where the local economy is going. So people forget we've had this before. It was during the financial crisis for well, five years. We we're putting people in hotels, um, and we had to ramp up the MSRVP, which is the equivalent of a Section Eight voucher, um, to get people out of um, hotels. Despite the fact that you know it's still a housing crunch, problem is that migrants can't qualify for Section Eight or MSVP or public housing. They're not U.S. citizens and not a permanent resident. So this is actually really a compounded problem where uh, they cannot qualify for what we normally do is try to get people from a temporary shelter to a, a Section 8 or MSRPV or some kind of public housing or other similar types of semi-permanent housing, which only U.S. citizens and permanent residents are allowed to have. So this is a this is a real problem. Um, That's why they were sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. Yeah, this is a problem because a normal avenue of recourse to, to address this issue is not available for them. Refugees are a little bit different. Since they're a federal government, they also do not apply for Section 8s because they're refugees, not permanent residents. They don't apply, they don't qualify for other similar issues. But at least the federal government has a program specifically to assist them on housing transition. There is no current program on the federal level for migrants, and our normal solution of how to address uh, temporary housing problems is not available in this situation. This is again back to the work permit problem that if you, they can't make money, they can't get housing, and housing I know is limited. Um, so this is a real conundrum for folks to try to sort out. Um, and I do expect that, you know, as, as 
you know, we had among the highest housing prices in, in the greater Boston area. Um, and we talked about this multiple times about inflation and people's dollars you know, being uh, crunched on being able to spend things, um, especially necessities. It's it's going to get more um, challenged. So I do expect the administration is going to continue to have to do somewhat continuous shuffling as they try to figure this out. But like I said at the beginning, the normal resolutions we've had that we used during the 08 financial crisis, where we were almost in a billion dollars in, in the uh, shelter crisis, hmm. we, we you know had to open up our RSVPs uh, as a you know, solution to try to relieve the temporary shelter issue. And then you know we actually emptied the temporary shelters out you know, by 2017. So this is this is the conundrum that we're we're kind of in, and um, uh, I know the public, you know, only looks, you know, at the sausage, not how the sausage is being made, um, and I get that, but you know, there are constraints on some of the solutions we can use for Massachusetts uh, residents that are citizens, permanent permanent um, uh, resident holders, um, but they're not available recourse for for migrants. Yeah, I think that's good to point out because, um, you know, folks that, that are, do qualify for those programs that are citizens um, are are being taken care of. We're trying our best. The problem, again, is a shortage of everything. Well, right. Yeah. So the migrants are contributing to some of the temporary shelter problem, but the, the permanent um, resolution regarding RSVP, uh, the government feds haven't changed Section 8 in like forever. Just all mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, Public housing is very full, and you know, and all that. I'm recognized that I do. I truly do. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like a two front battle. When one front side we're dealing with trying to get people in temporary, which administration is very committed to make sure you know people can get into temporary. But at the same time, though, you know, we, we still have to address the housing crisis on the other end, and Ed Augustus is trying to solve that. Um, and I think again that the economy is not going to be a conventional so called recession. I think it's going to be a more of um, a price crunch against residents who can't pay to make ends meet. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, another crisis, I guess, if you will, or issue is the whole issue with steward healthcare that uh, cropped up earlier this week, and you know how that might impact uh, the, the state healthcare system. We're already short community hospitals. I think it's no secret to people in Quincy. And the collapse of more community hospitals uh, results not necessarily just in emergency room access, but also general health care, uh, both on um, essential and, and um, not critical health care, as I like to put it. There's no such thing as non-essential health care. Right, yeah. So now I need, and then there's, we can hang on for a while before I have to address, but still, right. right? Uh, levels of prioritization uh, given different circumstances. Um, Carney, of course, is a big issue for us down here in, in Quincy because uh, you have South Shore, Carney, Milton, and of course, Boston Medical Center is the surrounding hospitals. And Carney going down, that would be a, a real problem. Um, if we had Quincy Hospital and Carney went down, that's actually not that terrible. I know it sounds, right. to put it that way, but because of the, the catch basin of um, the net of uh, geography, you could actually kind of make that work. So I'm not sure what the administration is going to do and what DPH is going to do. Everyone's kind of flat footed. And uh, Stewart is a for-profit hospital. And, and just like, oh, no. The majority of the country is for-profit hospitals, by the way. Not oh, really? It's really kind of a Northeast thing, yeah. If you look around, most of the country is for-profit. <laughs> but well, the, Stewart is based, yeah, in Dallas, Texas, I think, so, yeah. 
Yeah, and the for-profit model is challenging in, in Massachusetts. It doesn't work as well as it does in other states. Mm. Um, and hospitals like Stewart uh, is built on the concept of universal health care. I was telling some friends, I mean, you know, these investors sometimes prefer a fixed income mm-hmm. versus uh, rapid income, meaning that, you know, their investments in a business is result in steady revenue so they can return their, pay their debt and, um, you know, return to shareholders their risk of the money that went in, as opposed to, you know, quick hits like flipping a house. I put right. money in, get like 800% profit and, you know, take our cuts and get out. It's It right. doesn't work your way, but universal healthcare is supposed to create that stream. It hasn't really worked out that way no, because we never, no, we, we don't have true universal health care and for-profit hospitals would do very well under universal health care because private investors would be more interested in steady revenue than quick hit revenue. And we have this kind of like, you know, hybrid-ish system between, you know, basically what Obamacare is now. So, you know, rising hospital costs, COVID impacts are still rippling through the hospital system on revenue losses. And reimbursement rates are challenged, and the feds are still dealing with Medicare. And place like Carney Hospital, Brockton Hospital, they're very much driven by Mass Health, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, the reimbursement rates are terrible. Uh, as a result, they have to eat a lot of those costs. It's not like a hundred percent of your healthcare is actually cost, uh, covered by Medicare, Medicaid. The hospital picks up a share. Right, share can be high as forty to sixty percent. Yeah, and going up too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's part of it as well. So it's a lot of moving parts. I wish it was simple as saying is that, you know, big corporate greed, uh, it, it, it's more than just that. It's a lot of factors. Of course, paying the shareholders is part of that, but there's a lot of other factors involved um, in the situation. And I think we won't really know the whole story uh, until more is reviewed, whether it be in the courtroom or, you know, DPH, you know, diving in to see what's happening. Yeah, I think there's a hearing this week, I think today, maybe even um, uh, to, to at least start the process. But it, I mean, they, they employ like, I don't know, 20,000 people too across the state. So there's an impact there as well. And there's also a ripple effect because it affects doctors groups. It affects uh, medical suppliers and food suppliers and lint suppliers and uniform suppliers, you know, affects, you know, office supplies. I mean, hospitals are economic engines. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I mean, Springfield, one of the major employers is the hospital. And mm-hmm. friends in Springfield, you know, would be devastated, not just because they would lose a hospital in a very large geographic area that doesn't have a hospital beyond Springfield, but also, um, you know, it's the biggest single employer and economic engine driver for other businesses around it. Oh, it's, it's the same on the Cape. Cape Cod Hospital is probably, if not the largest, one of the largest employers down there. Um, that's not part of the Stewart Network, um, but... But it's same example. Yeah, and I'm, I'm aware the speakers, you know, always had a very strong, very, you know, lots of concerns about um, the hospital system, especially the community hospitals. And I'm aware that John Lawn, um, who shares financial, um, sorry, as you can tell, I'm saying a little tired, uh, healthcare finance, uh, you know, has been working and trying to solve this issue. But it's it's not like half, you know, one bill and here's some money thrown at it solves a problem. There's so many different components to this issue. Um, it's not really easy. And healthcare has changed again, as you all know, post-COVID, how we do healthcare has changed a lot. Um, and uh, patient care expectations have changed. Um, we're going to let you go early, Tacky, because you're not feeling well, but uh, you want to talk about your newsletter? 
Yeah, we've had this question come up to the office every so often. Do I do a monthly newsletter? And the answer is yes, um, but it's through the HouseNet Community Council. So HouseNet Community Council is a neighborhood association, neighborhood group that does a lot of very important and great activities out in HouseNet. Uh, but HouseNet members, uh, community council members, you, you sign up for a membership. I think it's, I don't remember what it is now off the top of my head, but I think it's like 20 bucks. You get a monthly newsletter sent about HouseNet activities. Um, it is... Um, uh, printed paper. It is hand folded by the members and stamped. And um, Councillor McCarthy obviously represents Ward 1. So he has a, 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 a page or a half a page, and I get a half a page uh, to give some insights about what's going on in government. And uh, like this show, um, we talk about a lot. I talk about a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that, um, that you'll see in the news. It won't be in the ledger. It won't be in the it won't be in the globe, it won't be on the news uh, about how things work and um, you know some little details about behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, and it's 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 been useful. I've been doing it since I got elected in 2011 and only missed uh, maybe two or three issues where I didn't write something in. And um, if people are interested in a newsletter and supporting one of the local um associations in Quincy. Um, this is actually not a bad way to do it. I'm sure, uh, actually, I'm not sure. I know that a lot of former Neckers that have moved out in the city still contribute to the uh, council this way. So, you know, something that you guys can uh, consider um, helping someone local, uh, as well as uh, getting some insight from me on things that you won't read in local papers. Okay, yeah. So contact the HouseNet Community Council and uh, become a member and get your get your newsletter. Mm -hmm. They have a website. Um, they have a Facebook page. is very very active, and I'm sure that um, they're more than happy to, to provide you a copy. Excellent. Well, they do a lot of great things in the community. Um, I know Chowderfest is uh, coming up. They do, I think, a chili fest. Um, they do, you know, all kinds of things over the summertime as well. So it's it's a great group of folks. Yeah, a lot of folks like you know the. Housing Congregational Church and um, you know the Housing Garden Club—they all kind of a lot of the same people. They're all working the same thing with the councils. So it's kind of one of those things where there's some degree of cross pollination. Sort of, it's it's a closed knit community, so it's unavoidable. You're not participating in one organization down there. You're also participating in, with another one at the same time. And right. uh, I won't lie; I sometimes get confused myself because you see a lot of the same people, um, very great and good people doing multiple things in multiple organizations down there. So. Um, but yeah, it's uh, regardless, you know, it's all one really um, good community that, you know, cares about each other and, and tries to move forward on things that helps the whole neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Not a bad thing. It's, it's certainly what makes a community uh, a livable place. And Chili Fest is Saturday. Oh, is it? Okay, there you go. One to four, Chili Fest Saturday. They have professionals and home cooks up. If you like chili, uh, housing and congregational church. In the basement from one to four, um, go down uh, and uh, if you want to get a hot sampling of chili, probably got about 30-ish folks um, and uh, vote to give someone bragging rights for this year. So, um, you know, definitely a, a, an idea of an activity that will keep you nice and warm and likely another cold weekend. Yeah, it sounds like you could use a good cup of hot chili yourself, Techie. <laughs> <laughs> well, regretfully, my various food problems, my allergy problems, prohibit me from eating uh, this very good smelling stuff down there. But 
Uh, I might make I might make myself some chili at some point, <laughs> or at least some hot pepper to clear clear your sinuses. Yeah, I, I think some cayenne is going to be required to <laughs> flush out this this voice I'm having today. uh, well, I hope you're feeling better. But um, let's get your contact information out there. Six one seven seven two 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 three seven zero six one seven seven two two three seven zero is the phone number. T a c k e y dot c h a n at masshouse. gov tacky chan at mahouse.gov um getting emails uh as we closing during return i'm getting a lot of emails as people are trying to advocate for of their bills before the committee reports um and then you have uh state representative tacky chan facebook which you commented earlier about pictures of me being places as well as tacky chan.org uh there's some information there on, on references as well as um at Tacky Chan, which is the social media page. We're actually doing some posts on DCR looking for hires. Um, so we do stuff like that too. We get requests from um, other government agencies to to put out notices of like, you know, police exams and you know, DCR hires and other opportunities. And of course, MALegislature.gov. You actually don't have to call me to find a bill now. It's all on the internet. And by the way, that stuff is up to date. As soon as something happens, it isn't like there's a time delay. You can call me and find out. I love when people call me. So it's on the website. It says this. So what happened? It really, where is it really? I'm like, there is no really anything. It's, it, I use the same resource you do on finding a bill. So um, yeah, it may, it may uh, legislature great resource. And of course, uh, you know, here with QATV on your favorite podcast uh, with Joe. Uh, and uh, definitely catch Joe in the morning. Uh, for his 10-minute uh, update on local news. Thanks, Techie. Always good to talk to you. Hope you're feeling better. Thank you, Joe. See you in a week's time.